The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. In out there. Well, it's good to be here, and thank you very much for coming tonight. The last time I gave a talk on the Monday night, I talked about living a life of refuge. And I'd like to kind of continue in that theme of refuge this evening and explore with you um, the idea of finding refuge in the truth. Um, the last two weeks, Gil talked about um, the factors of awakening of tranquility and concentration. And in this scheme of the factors of awakening, uh, this quieting of the mind through tranquility and uh, concentration is essential for equanimity to blossom. But it's also essential for seeing clearly, for seeing the truth. Um, I'd like to begin with a beautiful excerpt from Earth, Fire, and Water by um, William Butler Yeats, in which he speaks about the quiet mind as the condition for seeing clearly. He says, Even our educated people pass without great difficulty into the condition of quiet that is the condition of vision. We can make our minds so like still water that beings gather about us that they may see, it may be, their own images and so live for a moment with a clearer, perhaps even a fiercer life because of our quiet. We can make our minds so like still water that beings gather around us and they may see their own images. So what Yeats is saying is that when the mind becomes still, we can become a refuge, not only for ourselves, but also for those around us in a way that we can see clearly. When the mind's busy with thoughts, uh, as you well know, it's usually about a standard theme, right? Me, myself, and mine. But when the mind quiets down and we have a moment of tranquility or a moment of concentration, then we have the opportunity for insight, for seeing things as they are. So here's a wonderful uh, little poem which many of you will recognize. Today you are you. That is truer than true. There is no one alive who is youer than you. So I think there's some truth in this little quip by Dr. Seuss that each of us is, you know, a completely unique result of causes and conditions that are innumerable and, and actually unknowable and that there is no one alive who is youer than you. And in, in conventional terms, this is true. But ultimately, this idea that we have of the self is really just a mental construct. 
And I think one of the most amazing contributions that the Buddha has made to the history of thought is his teaching that actually there is not a distinct entity that corresponds to our cherished idea of ourselves. In his um, famous fire sermon, the Buddha describes all of our experience as burning. He says, All is a flame, forms are a flame, sounds, aromas, flavors, tactile sensations are a flame, the intellect is a flame, ideas are a flame, consciousness is a flame, contact is a flame. A flame with what? A flame with the fire of passion, the fire of aversion, the fire of delusion. So we're burning up from these defilements. And as practitioners on this path, our job is to uproot these defilements of greed, hate, and delusion. And it's sometimes said that the defilement of delusion is at the root of the two others, of greed and aversion. And of course, it's our delusion that keeps us from seeing the truth. And I think it's safe to say that for all of us, our biggest illusion is the idea of self and the way we cling to me, myself, and mine. But what's tragic about this delusion of self is that it fosters a sense of separation. But the truth, according to the Buddha, is that we're not separate that this sense of self that we have is really just a mental construct and it has no fundamental reality. And it's this um, delusion of separation that's really at the root of all of our social injustices, war, racism, poverty. It's because we feel separate. And also the delusion that we're separate from the earth is at the root of how we're destroying the environment. So this myth of self is a myth that humans all over the world have been living with for millennia, not just this lifetime. And with this feeling of separateness that's born from the myth of the self, we feel insecure. For us in the West, most of us having inherited a Judeo-Christian tradition, uh, we seem to have added additional layers of suffering to this, as though you know, being separate is not enough. Now we have uh, the suffering of not being good enough, of being unworthy. And for many of us, the story of the Garden of Eden, the idea of original sin, has been really formative in our culture. And if you, you know, it's been transmitted down to us through you know, many, many generations of ancestors over 2,000 years. We're told that we're sinners and we're kicked out of the garden. Many of us grew up in families where somehow we weren't good enough. We're always encouraged to improve ourselves. And being just who we were as children or as adolescents was you know, not, not quite good enough. 
And then we've got this consumer society that we live in where we're constantly bombarded by advertisements that tell us that no matter who we are and no matter what our life is like, somehow it's defective. So we're always covering up. And actually we don't dare to be who we are. We're always trying to make an impression. We want people to approve of us. And so we project a persona, an image that we hope is going to be positively received. But when our effort is to try to meet what we think are the expectations of other people, it's unlikely that we're able to really be true to ourselves. So we pretend to be someone we're not. And, and it's often very subtle. You know, may, we may think that you know, we're not directly lying, but you know, maybe we're tweaking the truth a little bit, or we're withholding information, or we're covering stuff up, or maybe we exaggerate our accomplishments a little bit. And all this time, we're just digging deeper this hole of our separation. And it may be very hard to see the armor that we surround ourselves with. And then there's the uncomfortable truth of our own mortality. In the Buddhist tradition, old age, sickness, and death are called the heavenly messengers. And they're heavenly messengers because they're reminding us of the truth of impermanence. Aging is going to happen. Sickness is going to happen. Death is going to happen. So what would it be like if we really lived in the light of the truth of our dying? How would that change the way we live? In his acceptance speech for the Nobel Peace Prize, Martin Luther King Jr. said, I believe that unarmed truth and unconditional love will have the final word in reality. And I think this is true of the path of practice as well, that unarmed truth and unconditional love are really key elements of the path towards freedom. So how do we approach unarmed truth? How do we disarm? First step might be to ask ourselves, what am I reluctant to admit or to acknowledge? What am I reluctant to be truthful about? What am I covering up or withholding? What keeps me from looking at the truth? So one thing that's been really helpful to me is to remember that it's in our DNA to take care of number one. You know, that this myth of the self is the result of many millennia of evolutionary programming. So we don't have to add a second arrow of guilt when we notice that the myth of self is alive and kicking. You know, it's, it's part of who we are. And another thing on the same vein that's been helpful to me um, is to remember that if 
we're here today is because our ancestors were vigilant. So this, there's this undercurrent of anxiety, watching out for predators. And that also is a natural outcome of successful uh, natural evolution. And again, we don't have to feel guilty about being anxious. That this anxiety actually comes with the, the territory of our human birth. We wouldn't be here if our ancestors hadn't been anxious enough to not get eaten. Okay, so did you hear the story about the Jewish mother who sends her son a telegram? She says, uh, Son, start worrying. Details to follow. (laughs) And it's true. I mean, sometimes we have this, like, undercurrent of worry and that doesn't, not necessarily based on anything at all. Just start worrying, details to follow. So the first step is to see into how we've bought into this myth of a separate self and, and maybe into a self that's inadequate or, or unworthy. And then to see the length that we go to to protect this vulnerable being, how we cover up how we try to project an image that's going to be well-received, and how we're less truthful when we do this. And I think we all do it. So the first step is to see when we're less truthful, and then once we see it, what do we do about it? So when the Buddha gave his first discourse after his enlightenment, Uh, he taught the Four Noble Truths, the truth of suffering, the truth of the origin of suffering, the truth of the end of suffering, and the path leading to the truth of the end of suffering. And so this is basically his main teaching. And you even see often elsewhere in the Pali Canon, uh, the Buddha will say that uh, he only teaches one thing. He teaches suffering, and the end of suffering. So in many ways, that's, that's what it's all about. And it's really interesting that he called these noble truths. And one way of understanding this is that penetrating the truth of our suffering somehow ennobles us. It makes us nobler. Gives us nobility. So what happens when we face the truth is that we make a choice to bear witness to our personal and our collective suffering. Those aspects of our lives that are painful or uncomfortable, we turn towards them. We stop running from the pain of our inadequacy, from our delusions, from our unworthiness. We stop covering up, we stop pretending. For much of our lives, the idea of bearing witness to the depth of our suffering has been too scary. And when we can't go there, we, we create endless ways of escaping or covering up. 
And this is where having a meditation practice is so important. With a regular practice, we cultivate mindfulness and concentration. And we practice simply being present for what arises. And this simply being present is a beautiful way, actually, of practicing truthfulness. And little by little, as we stay with this, as we stay with being present for what arises, we start to learn that we can bear witness to our suffering. Some of us have been victims of trauma or abuse. Some of us are living with a grave, incurable illness. Some of us have lost a child. Sometimes our suffering seems to be beyond what's humanly possible to endure. And yet, the truth is that our hearts are big enough. And we may spend decades running away from our suffering, convinced that it's beyond what we could possibly bear. (coughs) But the beauty of this path of practice is that little by little, we come to trust that, yeah, our hearts are big enough. And that trust comes when we have the wisdom to function for ourselves as our own loving, compassionate parent. When we come to love and care for ourselves in the same way we we would love and care for a newborn child. And if you've, you've ever experienced the birth of a child, you know that it's absolutely amazing. I mean, it's, it's a miracle and your heart just, just bursts open with love. And no way would you perceive this little newborn as inadequate or unworthy. So in the same way that we can unconditionally love a newborn baby, we can see that newborn that we once were in ourselves, and we can offer ourselves that same boundless love and compassion. And this is the truth of who we are, eminently worthy. Jack Cornfield likes to talk about his experience of working with troubled kids, and he says that what saves them is when someone sees their beauty. So we need need to be able to see ourselves in this way. And this is not just pie in the sky. You know, we, we need to tell the truth of who we are. And the truth of who we are is that we're each one of us someone beautiful. No matter what injuries we may be carrying, no matter what mistakes we've made. And inside each of us is a truth seeker. If it weren't for that truth seeker, that innate truth seeker, none of us would be here tonight. So even before we know, somehow inside of us we know. We just, we have to kind of uncover it. 
that beautiful, noble, and worthy being with the capacity to awaken, that's the truth of who we really are. And that's the truth where we can find refuge. So with this truth of the worthiness and nobility of every being, including ourselves, we can turn towards bearing witness to our own suffering, the suffering of those we love, and the suffering of all beings. And this truth is really powerful. And we can sit with an open heart and be honestly present with whatever arises, letting go of the anxiety of our imagined unworthiness, letting go of that deep-rooted tendency to worry, and the simple practice of just being here. It's not easy, though, letting go of all these well-honed strategies that we have of armoring ourselves and pretending. And, you know, uh, deep down inside, each and every one of us, we want to belong. We want to be cared for. We want to be held in compassion. And through this simple practice of mindfulness meditation, we learn to take refuge in this present moment and to find safety in our capacity to bear witness, to stay with our lived experience without covering it up in some way or running away from it. And knowing that our experience is going to contain the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows, but that we don't have to get hooked on the joys and we don't have to push away the sorrows. This is the capacity that we cultivate to see clearly. And this is finding refuge in the truth. So when we're face to face with the first noble truth of suffering and we remember also the truth of our nobility, then we can hold ourselves with compassion. And with the deep compassion for this suffering being that's ourselves, our lived experience is that, yeah, our heart's big enough to hold it all. So if we stay with our meditation practice, at some point the mind becomes quiet enough and clear enough that we see our boundaries dissolve and this experience of not-self is, is very beautiful, even blissful, but even more so, it's something that we know the truth of it. And I'm sure, you know, all of us have, have had this experience uh, many times in our lives where, you know, maybe we were a kid and we were looking up at the stars at night and, and our boundaries dissolve, and, and it was a profound and beautiful experience not to be separate. So as we walk on this beautiful path, um, one of the most important things is knowing in every moment what we would do that would lead towards more suffering and what we do that would lead us towards freedom. 
And this is a kind of discernment that we uh, need to cultivate because without this, we can spend an, you know, our entire lifetime heading down the road that leads us to more suffering. So to cultivate this discernment, the first thing we need to do is to slow down. Slow down enough to be able to get off of automatic pilot. And then to have the mindfulness to notice the choices that we always have to make. And this is why there's so much emphasis in this practice on mindfulness, because if without the mindfulness, we don't even know and we're, and we're just constantly being pushed by our automatic pilot. But once we have, we've slowed down enough and we're mindful that we have a choice in this moment of which way to go, then we need honesty to be able to see it clearly. So I think many of you are uh, familiar with the five precepts that um, all lay Buddhists uh, commit to. They're all about non-harming. We vow to uh, refrain from killing living beings, from taking that which is not offered, from sexual misconduct, from false speech, uh, and from intoxicating the mind. And in the, the... Jataka tales, these are, the, these are the stories and the imagined stories of the Buddha's previous lives before he was a Buddha, when he was a Bodhisattva training to become a Buddha. And he made quite a lot of ethical mistakes, I mean, including killing people. But there was one ethical quality that he never, ever, ever transgressed. He never lied. He never lied about what he did. And so we can kind of take from that that, you know, the Buddha understood many eons ago that um, not being truthful wasn't going to work in the long run. There's no way he was going to become a Buddha if he wasn't truthful. And there's, uh, there are a lot of parents who apply this kind of a red line uh, in raising their kids. You, know, you say to your kids that... Uh, you know, we know you're going to make mistakes and don't worry, you know, you'll be forgiven. But then there's this one mistake which is not going to be okay and that's if you lie to us about it. So, there's a, there's a lot of freedom that comes from, from telling the truth. Knowing that mistakes are inevitable but also knowing that we're not going to lie about our mistakes or dissimulate them it gives us a kind of protection. At the heart of this freedom to always tell the truth is the ability to see how things are and the ability to say, no matter what is arising, this is how it is. Just this seeing of how things are is enormously liberating. This is the way things are. It brings wisdom, it opens the heart, and it brings us compassion. Just seeing. We stop, we quiet the mind, and open the heart, and we begin to see. 
One uh, definition of the practice of mindfulness is uh, practicing being honest with what's happening in the present moment. And when we meditate, we can be in the privacy of our own experience. And in this privacy of our meditation, we don't have to impress anybody else. And it's a wonderful place for cultivating truthfulness. One of the most beautiful things I've heard uh, Gil say about truthfulness is that you have to love the truth more than you love yourself. So cultivating this radical love of truth where we start to let go of all those feelings of inadequacy, to let go of wanting things to be different than they are, to let go of needing to make a good impression, that for me is what it means to find refuge in the truth. When we're honest with the way things are, then we're in a position to have that discernment, knowing what's going to lead us towards freedom and what's going to lead us towards more suffering. So it was um, Jesus who said in the book of John, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And each of us has the potential to know the truth. Many of you are familiar with the ten paramis, the ten perfections of Buddhahood. And these are qualities that we cultivate on this path to freedom. And truthfulness is one of these ten that are essential for becoming free. And it's interesting to remember that all of these qualities, uh, including the commitment to truthfulness, are innate in us. We already have them. It's a question of uh, revealing them. So the fact is that we're, you know, as I said earlier, on this path because there's the truth seeker that's inside of us who already knows. So we need to be faithful to that truth seeker. And so the one thing that we can't do on this path is lie to ourselves. And so we have to be willing to see was difficult. So in in my own practice, one of the key steps in becoming more truthful has been to become more self-compassionate. And once we can hold ourselves in, in compassion, then our compassion for others just blossoms effortlessly. So my... My root teacher, Shinryu Suzuki Roshi, says, and I'll paraphrase a little bit, he says, don't worry a bit when you become you yourself and when you see things as they are and when you become one with your surroundings, in its true sense, there is truth. So don't worry a bit. All you have to do is be yourself. So... What I'd like to leave you with is, is the idea that with a commitment to truth and this abiding compassion, it's possible for us to live our lives with the wise and tender heart of a Buddha. So if you, if you like, one thing you might um, 
work on over the next week would be to explore for you what it would be like to, to really hold yourself with compassion. And then the role of self-compassion for you in becoming more truthful in finding refuge in the truth. So, thank you very much for your practice. And uh, we have time for remarks or reflections, questions. Um, <clears throat> thank you. Uh, uh, well, one thing that caught my eye is maybe you can elaborate. You mentioned the Buddha. Uh, killed people uh, is the first time that I'm personally hearing this. If you, if you wouldn't mind elaborating on that, I would appreciate it. Yes, not not Shakyamuni Buddha that we know. These are these are mythical stories of the Buddha's previous lives um, as a you know as a bodhisattva, and you know he had a cousin that he had a fight with, and you know maybe killed him in a previous life, and so anyway. Um, I don't have a question. I just wanted to say I've been listening to Audio Dharma from Pennsylvania for five years or so, and this is the first time I've ever been here. So it's like coming home to a place where I've never been, and it feels wonderful. I've, I know the voices, I know the names, and I listen nightly, so you've all been in my head, <laughs> and it's been wonderful. So thank you. Welcome. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. That's great. Wonderful to see the, the wider Sangha coming come to visit. Um, I liked what you said about disarmament. Can you explain that a little bit further? The, the question was about disarmament. Yes, I quoted... Uh, Martin Luther King Jr., who said that um, we needed unarmed truth and unconditional love. And he was talking about, you know, for, for world peace. Um, but I, I brought it into our own personal uh, cultivation of, you know, what, what would it mean for us to disarm, that, that, that we're all kind of carrying this armor and it, you know, it may be more or less rugged or more or less subtle, but often, you know, we're we're kind of uh, not quite being completely naked with who we are, and we're, you know, maybe, uh, you know, trying to look a little bit better, or, you know, tweak this or that, or. And so the the question is, and it's a question for all of us, you know, what would it what would it look like to to disarm? Would you like to comment on that? I don't know. I just think that we as human beings have sometimes a difficult time. Um, we think that we're so powerful, and sometimes we are. 
but we find out that we really, what's powerful is the God inside of us, the love inside of us, our higher self. And um, I love meditating because it quiets that mind. And I think that when you were speaking, I thought when you were talking about disarmament, you meant our minds, our ego. And when that stops, you know, like we connect to our heart, and that to me would be what it would, what you were maybe speaking of, or he was speaking of. I love Martin Luther King Jr., so um, I will think of that because that was one of the words that you mentioned that you know how they just jump out at you. And that was the one that I really, I really liked that. And the second, not second sight, second, you said something else. The second, uh, my mind's going now. I can't. It's, it's leaving the building. <laughs> second something. And I just, uh, I really love that. Thank you. I appreciated your talk. Thank you. Um, yeah, I think, I think it's the, that ego you know that that myth of the self that we have that constructs the armor and it it perpetuates our our separation and our yeah there. Uh, I was just gonna wanted to ask kind of a follow up to your the closing quote that you gave um, I don't remember the exact wording but um don't worry a bit, uh, be yourself. Um, from a Buddhist perspective and from your practice, what does it mean to be yourself? Yeah, it, it, um, it's kind of contradictory because we say that there's no self, but um, the conventional reality is that you're here and you know we're all here, and if we went to our landlord and said, well, there's no self, I'm not paying my rent this month, it's, you know, it's not going to go over very well. So um, what Suzuki Roshi was, was saying is that when you become you yourself, really, that's when you're not wearing this armor anymore. That's when you're not pretending to be anybody that you're not. And, you know, and that's when it's, it's going to be really the truth. Does that help? Yeah. Thank you. Okay. Uh, may I? Uh, one more? Okay. Uh, you talked about uh, being compassionate with yourself. Um, can you be a little bit more practical? And how do you, other than just meditating every day, is there a specific attitude or, or what, what, what's something that's helpful for, for maybe all of us to, to kind of further that? Uh, one thing that's, that's really helpful is the practice of the Brahma Viharas. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but there are there are, um, it's a kind of meditation where you, you cultivate a compassionate heart by repeating over and over again uh, phrases like, uh, may all beings be free from suffering, free from struggle. Um, may, may all beings be held in compassion. May I be held in compassion. And so you can meditate with those phrases and let them sink in, and it, it, you know, it starts to change the neural pathways and, uh, and the way we actually perceive things. And the other, um, what I hoped was practical, was the image of a newborn baby. You know, that, you know, you, a baby's born, I mean, you're just, you know, no way is that person unworthy. 
you know and 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 yet we all have that newborn inside of us, and so you know just to you know remember how worthy we are of our own compassion, and then I think also another practical thing is trying it out, you know just experimenting seeing see if you can catch yourself when you're being judgmental towards yourself, when you're not being compassionate. And then step back and say, okay, what, what would it be like if I had a, you know, I could love this person who's struggling in this way, who's in this kind of pain. And see if you can just, you know, role play a little bit, being the compassionate parent for your own, your own screwed up self, you know. <laughs> And, and little by little cultivate it. Brahma Vihara meditation. Yeah, if you go onto the, the Audio Dharma website and look it up, there, you can find examples of how to do it. And, and there, there, are, there are guided meditations on compassion meditation that you can do for cultivating compassion towards yourself and towards other beings, including even people that you have difficulty with. Hi, Meg. Uh, yeah, I'm still a little confused about this myth of, of being a distinct self. And uh, you said Suzuki Roshi says that you're going to become you yourself. And then I say, what? And then I'm thinking like, well... Tomorrow I have a deadline, and um, nobody's, you know, various people are expecting me to meet that deadline and their consequences, and if, if nobody's going to do it but me, I don't see anybody out there who's going to do it. So, what self is that? That, that's what I was talking about, where you go to the landlord and you say, oh, this self is, you know, doesn't exist when I'm not paying my rent. You know, that, does, that doesn't really hack it in, in uh, everyday life. But oh, so think, just everyday life, we just bracket this Buddhist no, truth? I, I think um, if you look at the example of Suzuki Roshi, what he modeled for us as, as an enlightened Zen master, he was really himself. You know, he wasn't, he wasn't covering up anything at all. And so, you know, um, there, there, is a, there is an actual example there that... that uh, so there's a that. self that isn't a myth, and that's the one that Suzuki Roshi was being. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'll stop. If you're not confused, you know, if you're not, if you're not stuck on the idea of self, you can be fully yourself. If you're not stuck on it. It's the clinging that gets us into trouble. Okay. Nine o'clock. Thank you.